Clay pretty Wright. good. Clay Wright. That was pretty good. Show him how it's played. <laughs> I just heard it. I just heard it played right. <laughs> July 21st, we're in Studio 2 at Sunset Sound. We are joined by two incredible musicians, people, and two founding members of the band Toto, Mr. David Page and Mr. Steve Picaro. Hi, how you doing? Hey there. Hey, guys. Tremendous. And we're also always joined with studio owner Paul Camerata, who owns Sunset Sound, with his father now for 63 years. Yeah. Yeah. Where's the time go? Where does it go? We probably ask these questions. Well, we spent most of the time in probably in the studio. <laughs> a lot of you guys was, did so, for decades. Was spent here. We did. I we remember did. hearing about some of my earliest sessions. I would hear about Leon Russell, where him coming to Sunset Sound. So yeah. I was just telling you, always a, one of the key uh, timeline coordinates I, I was remembering was that uh, Leon did del, uh, accept no substitutes with Delaney and Bonnie in this studio here no kidding which which put together which was the beginning of that mad dogs bangladesh derek and the dominoes personnel on it you know Mm. and david anderley uh coincidentally produced that record and when we were working here on toto that he was producing uh rita coolidge so he used to mentor me and i used to ask him questions all the time and we we were we had a standing joke he did that record in a month and i told him i well we're we we did one in six months, and we want to come and get it closer to five months. <laughs> we want to shave it album. down a little. <laughs> shave it down a little bit. I would laugh. play that record to my piano teachers because they yeah. wanted. They were all kind of jazzers yeah. and wanted to teach me jazz. Yeah. And I'd be going, "Yeah, but this is how I want to play piano." <laughs> I and I know. and it was Leon playing gospel. That's right. You know? That's right. And it was wow. kind of foreign to them what he was yeah. doing yeah. To, to the strictly jazz guys. But yeah. I didn't know that that was recorded. That here. was here. It was a yeah. seminal album. For yeah. Him. That's why we do this show, though, just to pick up things. Even well, right. when we're talking with your bandmate, Mr. Steve Lukather, the knowledge that you know is picked up and other things. But yeah. um, <laughs> you know, he's just remembers little details, and yeah. you'll remember little yeah. details. And I wanna... remember him. One of the first sessions, Toto sessions, we did here. He had just worked with Cheap Trick here. Oh, yeah. I think in the studio. I think oh, it was here too. Okay. He, they asked him to come in and play guitar on it with Rick Nielsen. Yeah. So uh, there was all kinds of people here you know with teddy templeman and van halen were here that's when i first uh a lot of cross colonization guys. you yeah. know yeah you guys would just float between the studios yeah. that's right yeah that's right. and other you know producers would come in and see you working with someone else and yeah next thing you know they're calling you two weeks later saying beyond yeah. their record yeah. yeah it was a little uh production center here you know yeah Wow. Yeah, it was very was, cool. With the center basketball court to like the center all, basketball yep. court. Are they cool? Did he play hoops out there? I told him. I said I made some hoops, and uh, I told him I'm missing the uh, ping pong table. Mm. No, that's true. The famous. We ping used pong to have table. the ping pong table. Where that was sure that. Uh, you know, I think it just got beat up and <laughs> never replaced. <laughs> no, but like, where would we bring it out? Oh, we'd put it, you know, in the in the breeze yard, okay. or sometimes down the you know walkway. Yeah. Cool. Well, Toto has one of the most identifiable, unique sounds. I said in the Lukather interview, Billboard right now is 80s. It's drum machines. It's no cymbals. It's a lot of synths. It's it's cool. So, you know, the interest in that music is is revolutionized again for a whole new generation of kids. 
Uh, in this room, you did Toto 4. You worked on Hydra in Studio 3. You also worked on the first record in... What room was that, Paul? I don't know. You know, I had kind of forgot about the first uh, record. I, I don't think we and worked here on that record. Luke, that was a Studio 55. Well, that was 55. That's what I thought. Yeah. And yeah. then uh, Steve goes, no, no, we did some work here. So then I looked it up, and we got credit. So then we got the gold record just oh. recently. Well, you, we, you, we probably did something some overdub, here. Something, yeah, we did something. Something, here. something was done something, here, yeah. I guess. Yeah, Maybe a mix or something. I mean, we, we did total four here and also in uh, one. Yeah. Also, too. And that and part of Hydra in one. Was I, Tom Knox uh, yeah. uh, first Yeah, mm -hmm. And first he record? cut Hydra yeah. in one, and yeah. we cut uh, Make Believe in one yeah. also. Okay. And while we would sometimes, you know, yeah, move into a certain studio for a while, we'd be jumping. I remember doing some overdubs on Hydra at different yeah. studios. I'd be working on the intro yeah. tape, the same yeah. thing, where Jeff was working with uh, The Strand or That's something right. like that. Yeah, Jeff we'd was. We'd be bouncing around. Yeah, we did The Strand record, Studio mm -hmm. One. Yeah. Yep. Jeff you, threw me out one morning. <laughs> right. Imagine. I'm shocked. Do <laughs> you remember the first time you came in here as a session player or to visit someone? I do. The, it was do my first time was uh, I was going to USC. I think it was 1973, 74. And I got a call and a guy knocked on my dorm door. At I was living at the USC and says, there's a guy named Jackson Brown on the pay phone. <laughs> He wants, wants to know if you're here. Oh, and I get on the phone with Jackson. Jenkins goes, where the hell are you, man? Because it sounded like Animal House in this place. You know what I mean? And it was, was, and it was Animal House. But uh, uh, so we did the For Every Man album, and uh, I did uh, These Days for Jackson. Oh, my gosh, my favorite. And Jackson I actually Brown. did Redneck Friend, and I played on it, but they replaced my part. Elton replaced my part, so I, I didn't have a problem with that. Oh, Because David wow. Geffen was... Uh, uh, there, uh, he was their record head from Geffen Records, I think, or uh, Lecture Asylum. And there was, I remember, I remember entering the studio because there was a big sign on the door that said, David Geffen, please go home. It did? On the outside. Really? Don't yeah. come in. And Jackson Brown didn't want to know. Oops. You know? Wow. Yeah. Funny. And that's my memory of my first uh, session here. Steve, how about you? You know, I was just trying to think with you asking that question. I'm not sure. I'm sure it was me hanging out, seeing my brother, you know, or David or, yeah. you know what I mean, just coming and hanging out on a session. I mean, one I remember that I know I didn't play on, but I was here a couple times was when all the guys, Luke and David and Jeff, worked on a, a, the Jimmy Webb Angel Heart album. Oh, yeah. Red Mullen. Red um, Mullen. Oh, that's yeah. right. I remember yeah, coming in. That was him. here. Was that in this studio? Yes, this, yeah, this room. Was here. Amazing record and amazing musicians. And I mean, that was every song on that album just killed me. And I remember coming to the, by the time they were finished, we had been working here. I, I'm sure I'd, I'd been to Sunset before that. I'm just, I'm not sure when. I just sure. remember hanging out for that album. And then Jimmy in, I think, one had a little playback party. Mm. And we were in yeah. some studio working, and Jimmy was playing back the Angel Heart album. And I just was kind of, I remember just actually getting like overwhelmed. Every song was so. Yeah, brilliant. Just, you just know? killed me. Every yeah. song was so damn yeah. good. The songwriting you know? was just kind of. I remember a couple of uh, significant synth things that happened here with mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Which is on the Hydra album. We did the 99 song, 99. We mm -hmm. cut it in here. Yeah. But we did the so the the, yeah. the solo 
And we had Steve had a full-blown modular mm-hmm. system in there. And Roger Lynn, Roger Lynn. was uh, inventor of the drum machine, helped us get some sounds for that, you know? You and, had a rig in there, I remember, in the vocal booth of three. Yeah. I'd never seen anything like it. Even my yeah. dad was with me. And he goes, what's this? And it was to the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. that was probably this stuff. Yeah, and then it just sent me another one. I just remember. Yeah, forgive me. I'm, Please um, see these memories. Yeah. I, I yeah. couldn't remember everything. Um, Elton John for a little while there, he wasn't working with Bernie and he wasn't working with Gus. He was working with our pal James Newton Howard, and he had asked James there was some weird French song called "Nobody Wins." Nobody wins. And uh, you know he had asked James to do all the synths on it, and then James in turn said Steve. You know, because I had had all that stuff and I was doing yeah. all this programming with our, our first uh, yeah. uh, musical computer, this microcomposer. And James said, Steve, run with this. And uh, I set up, we, we actually kind of reset up our whole home studio. In one. In, was, was one. that one? It was one. In yeah. one. I mean, we brought the, our little, our Trident Flexi mix and wow. uh, I brought Everything. the whole. Yeah, we had a whole studio. Studio in, in there box. and we did it all at once. And, uh, you know, without we kind of did the whole Without thing singing in our ears, mm-hmm. with a sense playing uh-huh. and me and James and Steve all playing mm-hmm. simultaneously. It's called Nobody Wins, yeah. yeah. Wow, that must have been amazing. And what was the producer's name? Very famous. Uh, Chris Thomas. Chris Thomas. And Bill Price. And Bill Price Engineering. Hawaii, you know, and I see there's times like that where it, it wasn't until. I recently got a book on all these famous British studios and realized what a legend Bill Price is. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, these guys were just, I was just meeting these guys here, and I was so yeah. green and sometimes didn't know who I was working with. <laughs> yeah, that happened a lot. Though. It was another day at sunset, another you know what I mean? Exactly. It was another... Never know who you run into. It was yeah. another date at sunset, yeah. you know? What, for, Elton John got some form of syphilis or something? and the No, whole, no, no. He got... Um, Hepatitis. Hepatitis. I, I remember. That's, he, that's different, by the way. Yeah, quite a distinction that's, there. That's a little different. <laughs> I remember he he got uh, he announced that he had hepatitis, and the and the and they had the nurses come in, and I was here, and everybody had to go. I think we used my office. Everybody had to go in my my office and get a shot in the that's butt. Jerk, and it was gobbly, a gobbly chair, shot. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, Cher was here. She had to get one. Uh, us, the staff, uh, you know, was, yeah. like everybody in the band. I, remember. I always thought that it was hilarious, though, to be at the basketball court and there's a line of the line, a line of people going people in there. Ready to get, oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Paul's father started Sunset Sound in 1958 for Disney music. Both of your fathers have had significant careers as well. Amazing musician. What was your dad like? My dad was a... Uh, He's a kind of a cross between General Patton and Ralph Cramden. And <laughs> you know, that's how I describe him. A and little Shorty bit. Rogers. And Shorty Rogers too. <laughs> and uh, no, he was a great jazz piano player, and he was a great con- orchestral conductor and arranger. Yeah. So I used to go to all these studios when they were back when your father owned the place. Mm-hmm. And didn't Dave Hassinger was starting the Sound Factory? At Dave Hassinger. That's who. Who? That's who made it what it was. That's what I thought. Yeah. Because I worked with Hassinger. In 1973, I played on the first Seals and Crofts album that I've ever worked on, mm-hmm. and I did, we did a hit called Diamond Girl, and it was Dave Passenger at the Sound Factory. Dave, so. That's who taught uh, Val and, yeah. and no the rest kidding. of them. Yeah, and then they made Madonna. record one copy of the Sound Factory. Sunset Sound Factory? Yeah. Yes. Near right. Martoni's on right. Selma Argyle. Yeah. See, his dad, you know, I knew of his dad because his dad gave my dad 
his first, my dad's first steady job after moving. My dad didn't move to LA till 1966 when he was 36. Oh. And, uh, you know, to be a freelance studio musician. And things, you know, things went well for him right away. But Marty Page hiring my dad to be on the Glenn Campbell show. His dad was the musical director of the Glenn Campbell show, was my dad's first steady gig. Wow. And that was like a, a very big day at the Picaro household was uh, my dad landing that job. And um, and I always knew his dad that taught me and was always part of our lives yeah. and part of, you know, arranged our first album and, and uh, uh, was always a big part of what we were doing. It was always this, so sweet to me. But to this day, I'm learning, I'm reading a book, on, I'm reading a biography on Art Pepper, a famous yeah. L.A., you know, uh, jazz musician. And, and Marty Page is this legendary figure i never knew how how deep marty's roots ran i'm always you know we were always discovering yeah his deck te- you know just other all the projects he did and and how important he was to the west yeah. coast jazz scene you know he, here. he probably employed more musicians than anyone else in the west coast here as far as orchestras wow. for years i, I know he worked in these rooms yeah. Any, oh yeah any room that had some size on a tall ceiling he'd put an orchestra in there yeah. you know but also he did cheryl lynn in this room? That's right. Yeah, late Sherwin. 70s. 70, Massive hit. Yeah. Because I remember be this guy real. would be working on Toto, and then you'd go into the yeah. other studio and work on Sherwin. Yeah, we, yeah. we did some, we did, when Reds came out, we did a version of the Reds theme with Hubert Laws and Cheryl Lynn. And I think it was in three, we did the overdubs, the vocals. But we cut the track, I think, in this room right here, you know? Yeah, that's incredible. What was it about Sunset Sound? I mean, there's so many studios going, popping off in those in those days. Did, was there something special? And it's okay if it there wasn't, but when I first came in Sunset Sound, I immediately felt like an energy and just the story totally. and Paul and his father the and chambers, the the, yeah, the live, live chambers. chambers, the just the vibe. It just um, for yeah. me. I n- remember when I worked with uh, on the Jackson Brown thing. The, remember John Haney? You ever remember mm-hmm. John Haney? No. And you'd, and you'd come into the room, and Jeff would go, John, give us the cool lighting. And all of a sudden, <laughs> these lights would go off, the bright, and these little pin spots, colored pin spots would come on, and the vibe would be just there. I yeah. think you can see it on Exile on Main Street. You can see the vibe of the studio where uh-huh. everybody's just kind of crowded around because it sounds good to talk in this room. And you have a room that sounds good with your voice or a piano. If you hit a drum in this room or a, play a piano, it's very musical sounding. It's very, yeah. uh, you know, sonorous. Some you know? some rooms are just, you know, look, look. it's the same with, you know, you read all the time about uh, uh, when they're building concert halls, new ones. Right. I mean, they bring in all these acousticians and, and these experts, and uh, uh, sometimes no matter what they do, they can sound like hell. There's, there's just no... Just don't get uh, it right. Um, yeah. There's no perfect formula. Just it's, it's, it's always been a magical thing with studios, you know? Did your dad design this room? No. So um, I think this room was designed by Bill Robinson. Oh, yeah. So Bill Robinson was somebody my dad sort of um, hired off of from Capitol. He was the general manager over there. And you guys have been to Capitol. So, you know, the flip panels here sure yeah well he copied those from capital and put them in here and made a lot more versatility in this room and changed did a he probably single-handedly changed the direction of sunset sound in the late 60s to you know really bring it up 
Multiple levels. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think George, George Massenberg copied this scenario and put it up at Skywalker because they can flip those walls too oh, wow. up there. Okay. So that's what made that studio kind of unique, you know, as well as this one here. Joe Picaro, your father, what was your dad like? What was my dad like? Um, you know, I was always, uh, uh, you know, I had to give my dad a Lifetime Achievement Award, and, and my dad was the polar opposite of me uh, uh, in every way. He was this calm, laid-back uh, uh, professional who, um, I don't know, like I said, he took, a, he took his wife and four kids at 36 years old and moved us out to L.A. to be a freelance studio musician. Where were you I guys mean, living? Huh? Where were you Hartford, living? Connecticut. Wow. Where all my cousins that's and a big trek. aunts and uncles still you, are. You couldn't be further away from L.A. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he had, you know, he had a couple friends here, Emil Richards, and there were some other, a few other people that were from Hartford. But uh, for the most part, he was kind of a babe, babe in the woods. But he had come out uh, to visit Amo um, like a couple months before we moved and followed Amo around. And Amo kind of showed him the ropes and what was to be expected as far as you know, in LA where your sight reading had to be if you were going to mm. work in the movie studios. Because my dad was primarily a jazz drummer, but he knew, you know what I mean, if he was going to uh, make a living, he had to up his game as far as mallet playing. And that became yeah. his specialty. And he worked very, very hard. Now, to footnote that conversation right there, um, my dad was a musical director for the Glenn Campbell Show at Television City, which we used to go every Sunday. I got to play in the pit band with Paul Humphreys and oh, Louis cool. Schultz and all those guys. I was like 15, okay? That's when I met Jeff from Joe, who my dad had just hired. The reason my dad hired Joe is my dad had been, done a lot of gospel music with Mahalia Jackson, Tremaine Hawkins, uh, Aretha Franklin, and different cuts. And he was looking for a great tambourine player. <laughs> and my dad just would, would, his audition, he probably must have gone through five or six percussionists and just said, I just want to hear your tambourine playing. And these guys would play, and they'd play it like they were in high school kind of thing, you know. And uh, Joe came in and played it like he was in a Baptist church, smacking it real hard wow. and playing it. And, and my dad hired him right on the spot there just for tambourine playing. Little did we know he was the, per the tempanist and mallet percussionist of life, you know. He's an amazing, well-rounded yeah. percussionist, you know. And, and when we were first here, did a lot of, did a lot of uh, record did quite a bit of record work in the uh, you know mid '60s there, but then really uh, wound up doing being a film guy. The earliest stuff I can remember is that Amo started using him right away. Amo was known as as uh, uh, this vibe player who specialized in odd times. You know he he um, and my dad worked with Don Ellis, yeah, who specialized in that. odd times. Yeah. Uh, my dad wrote a book on drums and odd times. So Amo had all these bands that would kind of do standards. But yeah. they do them in seven four and five four, and uh, uh, I mean, and that's part of why my dad started working with guys like Lilo Schifrin, who were doing Odd Times, and uh, um, that kind of became a specialty of his. So those records, those early Amo Richards Odd Time records, are some of the earliest stuff. But I remember him working on like uh, uh, Nancy Sinatra records and stuff like that, and I was, you know, hearing him play, and um, wow, it's very exciting. What What about you? What Mr. Salvatore, Salvador Tutti Camerata, what did he introduce to you at a young age musically? You mean my father? Yes. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, you know, by, by the time I became aware of music, I was just hitting that stride of, you know, 
probably pre-teenager when all you wanted to hear was like, what was hip and rock and roll? And that was just happening here in Los Angeles. So that's what I was listening to. I think my father kind of let me go where I wanted to go with that. But I mean, I remember hearing, I guess, Doors records, things like that. Me too. British Invasion, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. For us, before, being, before the Beatles, I didn't, I didn't know about Elvis really, or no, or any of those guys. I it was Miles Davis quintets, yeah. and then the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Beatles opened up the That's doors. Right. Yeah. The, door, the floodgates. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then the doors. Soon after the we doors. got to LA, it was yeah. huge for me. Huge. And then I realized they were recording here. <laughs> yeah. it. So that was Bruce Botnick, right? Bruce See? Botnick. Yeah. Again, Bruce Botnick was hiring me for all this stuff, and you know he was on all this stuff I was working on, and I had no idea he was the engineer on all this Doors stuff that I obsessed. And he over. was young, like sixteen or something he, like that. I, no, I think he came in around nineteen twenty oh, and okay. asked my dad off the street, asked my dad for a job. Yeah, and uh, he liked what he saw, and he hired him. Yeah, but out. he was doing all kinds. I mean, he was doing like. You know, commercials during the day, like a Ford commercial. Then he was doing the Disney work in the afternoon with my Mm -hmm. father. And then at night, he would do the rock and roll stuff. You know, whether it was The Doors or, you know, he did like Tim Buckley. He did uh, Love, did all those love records. Stuff with Paul Rothschild. Yeah, Paul Rothschild. That were a good client. Or Herbie Alpert. He did work with them, with Herbie and, you know, some of his stuff. Did he do the Brazil 66 stuff as well? Well, we did that here. I can't remember if he recorded that. He did Janis Joplin. He did Buffalo Springfield. He did some Beach Boys. He even worked with Van Halen later on over at um, Warner Brothers Studio. uh, What was it called? Amigo? Yes, Uh, Amigo. Amigo. Yeah. Yeah. In the Valley, yeah. Steve, you started as a drummer, correct? Uh, You know, for about a half an hour there. Yeah, we all kind (laughs) of, you know, drums were always laying around at the house. So we all, you know, and there was always um, a, a turntable and a set of headphones yeah. You know, which is where Jeff spent a whole lot of the time. Um, well, your brother Jeff Picaro is probably one of the best drummers maybe ever. I think so. Um, what was your brother like when growing up with him? Uh, like I said, Jeff right away. Jeff was, uh, uh, I, I remember his, uh, um, it's really one of my earliest memories was was him like in kindergarten or first grade doing a talent show and playing along to Miles Davis's Bags Groove. Really? I didn't even know that. Yeah. He's playing along to the record, you know, but he just was laying it down, you know. Um, that was one of my earliest memories was Jeff doing that. And then, like I said, he, for me, I don't know where all his chops came from because what I saw, and I've always told people what I saw 98% of the time was him playing along to records, mm-hmm. was him just with the headphones on playing along to records and he would show me. He'd have a record with yeah. a Jim Keltner or a Jim Gordon on it, and he'd go, look at how steady the time is. He, he'd, he'd, put, um, he'd put a record, he'd put like a, a, a popular record on the turntable, he'd go, listen, and he'd play the start of the record, and it was a record I'd heard of, and then he'd pick up the needle, and he'd put it at the very end on the fade, and the tempo would be completely different. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But it sure. wasn't that way with Jim Keltner and Jim Gordon. Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. Know? So like at a real young age, he was kind of... You know, where maybe other kids would be focusing on yeah. their drum solo or, or something like that. Jeff was like... Aware. You that's know? what he was focusing on was, mm-hmm. was yeah. uh, uh, being, playing steady. 
What do you remember about Jeff in high school? I remember about Jeff. The jamming. first time I met Jeff was at a guy named Steve Leeds' house, and they were auditioning me to be the piano player in his group, uh, which is called World Still Life. And I remember Jeff sitting down, and it was Dan Sawyer and Gary Sherwood, and uh, he was the most amazing drummer I'd ever heard for a pro or a kid. You know what I mean? Because I'd been playing with guys in high school before. This was like he played better than any pro that I know as far as rock and roll and odd time stuff goes. And, and he, he was a teenager. Though. And he was a teenager. He was 14, 15 years old. Wow. And, uh, and he had the power, though, of a big band drummer. When he played, it was real confident. It wasn't loose and sloppy. And his time was just, I mean, he was doing stuff like What is Hip, the Garibaldi yeah. song uh, when he was young like that, playing all this stuff and a lot of Earth, um, uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, mm -hmm. all those records. He had them down, and that, that band was uh, uh, exemplatory of that era with Blood, Bobby Sweat, and Tears and Soul Band, the Blues Brothers, all those kinds of songs, you know. So he was just wow. the most amazing uh, talent I'd seen uh, and heard of in years, you know. When you guys got hooked up, and I talked to Lukather about this a little bit, but what was the goal? Just to be a session player, a working musician, and get a few bucks at the time? Or was it like we should start something at, at one point? At, I mean, the, those were all drifting around in our minds as far as possibly being a session player, but that bar was a real high bar to get at. So we were just playing around hoping to get a road gig in the meantime, which all of us ended up doing, you know, to get experience. And the reason we became wanted to become session players is to get experience because we wanted to eventually put a band back together. That was our. We didn't form the band in after doing sessions. We this was kind of a continuation of our high school band, and uh, uh, we just uh, learned off of everybody else's albums how to produce and how to record, uh -huh. and uh, took that knowledge to our our band in 1978 when we started uh, doing our demos and playing. Wow. You remember Incredible. these guys from high school or seeing them around town? Well, I, mean, I didn't, I didn't go schools. to Grant. Grant. Nah, I was North Hollywood. Too. I know, but so. North Hollywood. Yeah. Jeff went, Jeff to went to North Hollywood, Hollywood for a little. Yeah. For, did you? Yeah. Jeff did for yeah. one semester. Oh, okay. Didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Early yeah. on. I remember him telling me they had a, actually had a Moog synthesizer in the music department. There wow. Yeah. They had a small Moog. They had electronic music department. I'd never seen one. I hadn't seen one yet. <laughs> yeah. I heard that you guys had approached Van Halen engineer Don Landy to be the original engineer of Toto 4. That, that was a call that uh, we made uh, thinking, because we listened to all kinds of records and everything like that, and we, we'd like Don Landy's work with Van Halen and also his work with the Doobie Brothers. Oh, and yeah. he was revered as one of the greatest engineers in town. And so we were yeah. looking for a little bit more edge and someone we hadn't worked with. And uh, his, he, I called him, and he was working with Van Halen, and then a week before we were supposed to go in the studio, he called me and said he was hung up with Van Halen. He could not do this. So the week before, we were supposed to cut wow. our first tracks. So I came out here in the, in the breezeway and outside, and Al Schmidt was shooting baskets. And I just said, Al, what are you doing next week? And he says, well, I'm, I'm not doing anything. Why? I said, well, no you're, you're working with us next week. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And it was that simple. Al Schmidt became our engineer. Not that we wouldn't have go gotten hired him anyway, but uh, it was just a chain of events that happened. We all time. already knew Al. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Right. 
we already did. What was he working on out here? Or he's just hanging out? He was or? just hanging out. <laughs> waiting, waiting for the artist to get back from lunch or something like that, you know? His layups. Incredible. Yeah, his yeah. layups. <laughs> exactly. As a band, Funny. what was the mindset, independently or collectively, of Toto going into Toto 4? You had a big budget. You had something to prove? We did, because the t- albums following the first album, which went double platinum, one sold Hydra, ended up actually selling 900,000 copies. And I think it went gold, actually. But that took a lot of time for that. And then the album after that, we were because we were gearing up for live shows, and we were interested in making music on our records that would reflect live, heavy-duty rock and roll performances. So that's when Turn Back came about, and everybody was kind of, we were jamming at, uh, in rehearsal halls. And uh, when... Uh, uh, the total four thing happened. The record company came to us and said, listen, you guys had, had a couple of hits on the first album, but we haven't got anything from you since then. And, and we're going to give you one more chance to do another one more album. And we'll see how that goes. Oh, so it was to, make to it or break future. it. It was make or break. Wow. You know, Holy cow. so I well, went home and started writing uh, a, the song Rosanna because I wanted to put some every piece of information I knew from Quincy Jones, George Martin, anybody I'd work with, I wanted to get it into one song. So I uh, ended up writing that song, and we cut that right here with the piano here. I remember the switch, the change we'd made on the bass sound was we'd, made, we'd work with Chris Squire, Chris Squire from Yes, and he was using a Marshall on his bass. So we turned Hungate onto that. And then what happened with Rosanna was Hungate started playing through a Marshall on that. No kidding. Yeah, with his pick. Because you could hear that that pick sound, you know. And uh, so that was, uh, once we got Rosanna down and almost finished, we were able to bring in the head of uh, Sony, CBS at the time. And and they heard that, and they gave us the thumbs up, the green light. That's great. So it was that song that made it turn the corner. I was living with David at the time, and that was the first song he wrote. For the for, for the yeah. fourth album, I that remember because you, you walked in with that girl, <laughs> that girl that had a name that I needed for a song. Mm-hmm. Where'd you meet Rosanna Arquette? At? I met her at our friend James Newton Howard's wedding. Holy cow! At mm-hmm. a wedding, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which wedding? <laughs> <laughs> what day? It was uh, James's uh, which wedding? He's joking, of course. Yes, um, <laughs> it was to Wendy. To Wendy. To Wendy. Right. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you went home to David and gave him... Uh, Roseanne and I eventually got together, and, and uh, yeah, and I brought her. I was living with David. I'd been living with David since about around the time of the Hydra album. Yeah. And uh, I had learned with that, our engineer, we brought in a, a, um, a guy named Jeff Workman for our third album. And I actually didn't get along with Jeff while we were making the record. We kind of didn't, we kind of bumped heads while we were making the record. But after the record, Jeff was instrumental in teaching me about gain structure with the flexi mix we had at the Manor. He kind of, you know, I asked him how, why couldn't they use if I recorded myself, you know, if I had a 24 track, yeah. which we all of a sudden had, why mm-hmm. couldn't they use my stuff? If I, you know, came up with some magic at three o'clock in the morning when no one was around and I wanted to record what I had going on with those big modular synths or something like sure. that, just in case. And he was incredibly patient and totally taught me all about gain structure and wow. just how to get decent level. And I never touched EQ or compression, but um, 
It was inc- it was uh, an amazing lesson. So uh, um, so we were working for... at I was living and working at David's all that time, and uh, um, and I brought over to meet to meet David to meet my brother David. And uh, I had everything but the title. You know, we were kind of all taken by her. She yeah. was she she, she was, was a, quite she a muse, and and she's been a muse for a lot of musicians, and uh, and I mean that in the best best possible way. And she lo- was a lo- lover of music always and uh was very inspiring to us all wow total four you write all the music beforehand track all the music then write the lyrics not exactly that's what luke told me i mean each song kind of was different gotcha i had a lot of the lyrics to rosanna before we went in the studio but and i had make-believe and the rest of them kind of came as we were writing doing the album, almost Beatles style, you know, where you work on a song and start working on the lyrics and then track it, work on another song. So I'm not one of those people like Elton John or Jimmy Webb that can go through and write it from the piano and have all the finished lyrics. They usually take, it's a building process, like, uh, you know, painting a canvas, mm. and, you know, with a, with a toothbrush. I mean, just the nostalgia, even thinking of you guys in this exact room where we're standing and how yeah. tight that band must have been at that time. And how... It was very tight, and it was, it was so much fun. The thing is, Toto, we, had, we weren't like session musicians, like string players and guys that, that always had these serious scowls on their face. Toto had a blast making music because it was like we could relate to being on stage when we were playing in high school, that we were still rock and rollers, so... <laughs> We do a lot of things in the studio and and performance wise, and uh, you know uh, it was a lot of fun. It's really and Al true. Schmidt made it fun because he got sounds really quickly, and it was a real calming thing having Al Schmidt in there because of his he knew how to handle any situation we threw at him. You know, yeah. such a pro, yeah. such a pro, such a pro. You know, and by the way, in that time period was just you know was uh, incredible all around. Uh, um, you know, that first first part of the 80s, whether it was, you know, we went right from Toto to us all working on the Thriller album, and then yeah. I'd get a call and go work on Don Henley's album. You know, we'd get a call and both go work on Don, and just was, we were uh, uh, having a lot of fun and yeah. jumping around, and it was very, very uh, fruitful. The yeah. band was working, Jeff, I remember Jeff and Luke, and I think Hungate had just done Christopher Cross's album that mm-hmm. won all the awards, and... Uh, I had worked with Mike McDonald and the Doobie Brothers with Teddy and uh, arranged the horns and strings for Living on the Fault Line. Oh, so yeah. it was a close, there was a, a symbios, symbiosis of a lot of musicians emerging together and all being time. friends, yeah. all being friends, you know. Such a community. There still yeah. is down here. It's just, that's what makes it special. Plus tec- technologically, it was, things were changing. So we had kept, lo- we were locking right. machines together now. So all of a sudden right. you had That's like right. 48 exactly. or more tracks. That's right. Before exactly. it was only like we got to jam everything on 24 tracks. Yeah. Not anymore. That's why I was able to bring a tape home. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And speaking of that, I mean, we, we had heard that Paul Simon and Stevie Wonder did a thing where they would cut their master track on a 16 track, put that track away until they mixed mm-hmm. so they wouldn't wear their tape out. Right. So the first thing we did start copying tapes and putting them away and working off of slaves at the time, you know? So that was a new thing for us. You know, yeah. with the Q-lock, <clears throat> when Q-locks were in. yeah. Op- I remember yeah. that, yeah. right? Yeah, I remember three <laughs> machines in here. I yeah. remember tons of two-inch tape. Yeah. Yep. 
That's a two-inch tape. You yeah. were in here for four months, roughly, on Toto 4? Three months? Four months? It would have been five total. Wow. I mean, for mixing and everything. I, I think four that went on a long time, yeah. Yeah. Because we would do, we would cut a lot of heard stuff. heard it We would <laughs> cut a lot of stuff, and then guys would book sessions. And we'd go, and someone would do a week of sessions. And we'd have time off to go to my house and digest it and work on synth stuff. And so it wasn't constant working for four months, seven days a week in the yeah. studio. I remember when James Howard asked me if I wanted to maybe try, you know, uh, try and try to do some work on film. You know, I, I just remember answering him, you know, I don't know if I could have music done by Thursday. You know, I've never, I've, I've been in total all these years. I never had a deadline, you know. We would always, we loved being in the studio too yeah. in those days. And we would think nothing to add yeah. another couple of weeks onto our schedule or add another week of That's mixing right. or something like that we were doing that all the time yeah. for every project you know a lot of the guys that were visiting this <laughs> studio would come to my house because once we got our, our, our we were legit and you could keep stuff from our studio my studio in sherman oaks foster and james would come over there and we start doing a keyboard overdubs over there as opposed to we figured out it was much easier to bring a two-inch tape than to move two tons of gear into a studio. Yeah, know? exactly. Just bring the yeah. Mohammed to the mountain or whatever. There you go. You know? Yeah, like for a while, like I said, with the Elton thing, we would bring the whole yeah. thing. And after a while, it got real. You know what I mean? It was start kind of silly, you know? Yeah. And Quincy would bring. Quincy would started coming over to David's, yeah. and, you know, the people would bring their engineer and whatever. Yeah. And, and David had such a great studio. And, hey, I just want to say something. I've seen some other interviews, and we allude to all the partying and all that. That was going on back in those days, and I believe me, I, I don't deny that uh, I was right there. I I, uh, I spent my time and all that, but you know what? There were a lot of guys that weren't doing any of that at all. There were Lee Sklar's and David Foster's and right. and uh, uh, Bill Schnee's. That there were a lot of people that didn't party at all. You know what I mean? That weren't absolutely indulging at all. You know, um, yes. so when people talk about the old days, sometimes it seems to be painted with a real <laughs> wide brush like it was all just all this constant debauchery going on no, and, it uh, was. Was we had definitely had our share but uh and i don't deny that but yeah, uh, no pun intended on that one <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> <laughs> a little inside joke there very inside yeah. uh but you know what i mean i i just want to i just kind of wanted to sure, say yeah. that yeah. there were a lot let's, of people set the record straight there were yeah, the least scars and the people who never no. You know what I'm saying? And it, and they were never excluded out of being our brothers either. You yeah, know what I mean? Just right. because they didn't. You know, that was yeah. one cool thing about musicians in this community. Nobody was was yeah. uh, ostracized or whatever yeah. if they didn't right. didn't have the bad habits we had, you know. We didn't used to hang out in clubs in those days. We used to hang out here. Yeah. You yeah, know, it was literally <laughs> here. <I've been laughs> that was your club. At midnight, we would finish about 11 or 12 in this room right here. And Keltner would stop by, <laughs> and he would just bring a snare drum. And there was no instruments here. So I'd see Jim and a, and, a, and a bass drum pedal and a snare drum. He'd be carrying it in like he was doing a date, but there was no cartridge, nothing. So I look over, and I see him pull, pulls one of the trash cans, metal trash cans over, hooks his bass drum pedal up to it, <laughs> sits down and puts the snare in his lap, and, and, and takes a hot, uh, an ashtray, not unlike the one he used on Josie, and start using that for a hi-hat, this for a ride, this for a bass drum, and this for a ride cymbal. And we ended up cutting two or three things that night oh with God. me and him, like that. 
making just doing some rock and roll, you know, Stones kind of stuff, you know. So this was more of a, a musical haven and a club for really us was. because of the performances that would go down too. The most fun thing about doing albums was to hear people coming and doing magical overdubs. Whether you hear mm-hmm. Jeff overdubbing a kid on on Beat It, or you hear uh, Lukather playing an inspired solo, mm. or Steve, I'll never forget the first time I heard the Rosanna solo that Steve had done on the thing. And it was just heralding, you know? Yeah. It was uh, uh, amazing, you know? And thank God we had brought Greg Ladani in to mix it because he p- turned all these things up that we had always kept really safely, defensive, uh, mixed-wise. So he turned all the synths and the guitars up and everything. That was kind of our coming That's out That's right. Period. He was the mixer. Yeah. On, on Total Four. Yeah. 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 At record one, I think. Right? Yeah, it was the first time we'd yeah. use someone who hadn't worked on the album, really. He I mean, started as Van Halen's house mixer, too, right? Did he? I didn't know that. I did not know that either. Yeah. Starwood, that's, I think that's no what kidding. Yeah. said. But yeah. carry on, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. No, no, okay. not at all, not at all. It's cool. Uh, speaking of James Newton Howard, uh, Lukather was in Studio 3 right when it went online, working with Prince in there. And Prince was very quiet. Do you remember seeing Prince around here? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Basketball court, probably? Basketball, yeah. On the basketball court yeah. is where I saw with him. And I knew that Peggy, Peggy and I were good friends, right. and uh, uh, Peggy worked with us a lot. Peggy McCreary at the yeah. time, later mm-hmm. right. Peggy Leonard. And uh, um, I know she was working with him a lot. Yep. You know, and I was always kind of grilling her. What's he like? And what, oh, what's it like working with him? And, he brought uh, that up. You know, I was always curious, you know. You were a uh, fan. many years. Because I was a fan. Yeah. And he also liked to record by himself. I, I understood that thing of, yeah. of, you know what I mean, not having to have, you know, I was... Usually every overdub I did, right? I had my five fellow producers. <laughs> We're not even talking about an engineer or a yeah, second. Right. You know what I mean? Like this, you know, looking over my shoulder. We, we would all show up to every session, total produce themselves. And so uh, right. there were usually a lot of people around. Yeah, scrutinizing. <laughs> we, we, Everybody was scrutinizing. Mostly a lot of people we've never met before, you know? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> right. And we'll never meet again, you know? Yeah, like... <laughs> When you would finish tracks for Toto 4, would you bring people in to listen, to yeah, have outside absolutely. Kind of opinions? Well, that's, that's the other thing, is that we, we were so comfortable here. And, and, you know, we'd be in the middle, we'd finally be getting something really solid work done. This is wherever we worked, whatever studio we were in. And all it would take would be Jim Keltner walking in the room or some friend, and we would, huh. everything would stop, and we'd put up the two tracks that's the right. latest mixes right. and we'd want to you know what i mean play them we were so excited about what we were it was it was kind of like the little george syndrome i know that people were trying to find out where little feet was recorded and they Lowell would book places and then book that for a decoy studio and go to <laughs> really? a studio. Oh, i didn't even know that's that that's how I, that's how he showed up here no one when, i didn't know he was working here i, I did track james down or something. i tracked james newton howard down who had worked on the little George solo album, and I told him that he owed me a favor, which he did, and I said, I'm going to that session tomorrow, and I'm subbing for you, so I just want you to know, you know, because I wanted to play with Nicky Hopkins. Nicky Hopkins and George Massenberg and Keltner were going to play Far that out. day, and, uh, and I got to play with the great Nicky Hopkins and oh, work wow. with Massenberg for the first time. Amazing. Wow. Another gigantic figure here at Sense of Sound, Eddie Van Halen, yeah. Van Halen altogether. Do you remember seeing them around in I sure studio? Do. I do. I remember we had a very uh, early version of the uh, LM1 drum machine. 
and Ed had caught wind of it. Ed was in one of the other rooms. Yeah. And he came in sniffing around. That was one of the first times I think I met him. Yeah. You know. Yeah. What was he like? Great. They Fun. were always, yeah, always those old. guys. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I wound up helping him out with some synth stuff later on down the line, yeah. especially live and everything. I, and okay. and Alex a, and I did yeah. the stare. Very Luke close. really befriended uh, yeah. Eddie, you know what I mean? They got, became yeah. very, very close. Yeah, and stuff because they were both mutual cut from the same cloth, you know. And uh, they were buds. They hung yeah. Out. Quick question that I have to know: Did you play in Dirty Laundry? Or? I sure did. Gosh, sure did. you made Dirty sure Laundry? Wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. one of the greatest songs ever. Thanks, Thanks. so Thanks. cool. That was uh, I was working at David's house, and uh, I got a call at one in the morning. I'm not on record one from Which Henley. The, the usual from my brother. Who a was lot of the times the calls would come in at one, at one in the morning. Jeff. Hmm. Yeah, and they were all, yeah, them? they were working on, they were working and uh, we wow. made it that night. Tell me a little bit more about that because I love that song. Paul does as well. Didn't you go in yeah. there while they were working I, on that yeah, as well? Yeah, Dennis Kirk was, uh, I don't know if he was the engineer when you went down there, but he had me over at record one. He was Dennis playing Kirk. me that song and I was like, really? oh my yeah. God, Dennis this Kirk was amazing. Was, um, Ladani's assistant. Dennis Kirk yeah. was Ladani's assistant? I think so. Yeah, yeah they and, were. And he right. was an engineer. He was also a yeah. uh, front of house engineer for Gary Wright, my first gig when I was 17. He was? Dennis Weaver. Kirk mixed oh. us out front. Wow. Yeah. Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I went down there. They'd been trying to get this track all day. They, it couldn't be a synthesizer. Cooch wanted had a Farfisa organ sitting there, and they just wanted it nailed. And, and thank God our buddy Greg Ladani was the engineer, and Greg was... In those days, we used to go crazy trying to sync things up, yeah. especially after the fact. Jeff never liked to play to a click. It was always a thing trying to use these machines. It was always yeah. a big nightmare in those days yeah. to try to, to use this stuff. But I, when they told me what they wanted to do, the first thing I did was look over at the multi-track, and I saw that Greg had recorded the sync tone to the Lynn. Right. Okay, which not many people did. You know what I mean? But Greg had the foresight to, uh, to do that, and I knew... I was in great shape, and we just sunk the Lin machine back up. Mm-hmm. I programmed on a cowbell the pattern, but that 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 they wanted the uh, oh, cool. the, the organ to do. We put the the farfisa. We fed it through a VCA. Yeah. I brought Rudis, just this little small piece of modular gear, and just gated it. Had the uh, had the um, had the cowbell pattern gate the uh, the farfisa, and I just was holding the chords. Wow. Yeah. And so no. it was, it was nailed. I realized as I was driving home that they had drummer gates there and I could have done it with a drummer with an external input. Mm-hmm. I could have done the same thing, but, um, now a sidebar to that story, a prequel to that story please. is when they said they needed a part locked in and nailed. I told Steve, I'm on my way down. I'll be down there. Okay. I'm coming. Okay. And I've tried it one t- a couple of times to lock that in. And they played when Steve locked it in with the drum machine and Rufus, uh, Rudis, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. and uh, it was just so locked it was undeniable. Yeah. Wow! And then also, I told them out that that night. I said, "By the way, the stuff you're describing, like what you want to do, I just came from a Nam show, and I said, you know, there's this company Emu. There's this brand new thing out called an emulator, but I can't. And I had a lot of connections with yeah. with synth companies." I said, but there's only like seven in the world right now, and I can't get one. But if there's any way you guys could get your hands on one, I've got some ideas of some cool stuff we could do. They called me two days later, and Don had gotten his hands on one. 
He got one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don had gotten one, and we did all the teletype machine stuff. I did all of that at Which David's was a studio. lot of Steve. On, it's like yeah. you have an emulator sitting there, and they want to do a song called Dirty Laundry. I didn't hear all the teletype stuff going on in my head. That was all him, you know? Wow. Yeah. So we did all the sound effects. We actually even sampled the background vocals into yeah. it and triggered them. And, uh, That's you triggering uh, that stuff, yeah, too. Cool. All of it. All of it. Yeah. Do you ever meet Don Henley? No. No. I know he's been in here, but I, I never met him. No. See, crazy. I have to admit, I knew who the Eagles were, of course. And I was a big fan of a lot of yeah. their records. But when my brother Jeff called me, he says, yeah, the, the, the drummer of the Eagles is doing a solo record. I think, wow. I thought, even the drummer? The Eagles are that big? Were even the drummers? <laughs> even the drummer gets a, gets gets a, a solo album? And then it wasn't until they made us a, a slave tape yeah. of Dirty Laundry for us to bring back right. home to experiment with. That I heard his rough vocals. I was like, wait a minute, that's the guy. Yeah. <laughs> Which ended up being Jeff and Don playing drums on it together. Yeah. And yeah. Luke and Joe Walsh did traded, yep. solos, traded solos on that, you know? Oh, God, who did the that. first solo? Joe yeah. Walsh did the last one, or vice versa. Wow. My part again was nowhere to be found. <laughs> <laughs> no, you hear David, and all she wants to do is dance on a whole bunch of other stuff. on Henley stuff. We became part that of out, their, That was amazing. We out. became part of their team. Yeah. yeah. What was Don like then? Fantastic. He was... In the studio, creative, just... Especially uh, because, look at, and what was so great about that session, I just got to... I've said it before in interviews, and I'll, I'll say it again. What was so great is that my brother Jeff was standing there. Now, Jeff had put up with a lot as far as me and the technology. The whole band had... The whole band had seen me do this deep dive into synthesizers. Pre, this is pre-MIDI, mm-hmm. when it really wasn't convenient and a lot of stuff didn't work. And Toto spent a lot yeah. of studio hours with me messing with this stuff. And a lot of times Jeff and most of the guys, being the pure musicians they were, they were like, what are you doing? Will you just play and stop <laughs> messing with that crap? You know, <laughs> there was a lot of that. And, uh, but for Dirty Laundry, Jeff saw me come in and especially because Ladani had recorded the sync track, everything just clicked. And he got to see all this stuff that I had learned, yeah. put it into practice, and how wow. useful it was in the studio. And it was just bing, bang, boom. That's incredible. And it was so great that my brother Jeff was there to kind of see, yeah, to see that. You know what I mean? It to validated see it, it all you know? working. There was no waiting for paint to dry, doing the sense, <laughs> you know, or like Quincy used to say, it's like, Painting a 747 with a toothbrush, you know, there was none of that. <laughs> Everything just worked that it. night, yeah. you know, and it was fun. Um, Alan Sides was in here and just was so poetically speaking about him. Yeah. What do you think about Quincy Jones? Uh, I think Quincy's a master producer. I think he was a great film composer, did some films. I yeah, like those films. And I think he just has a uh, an overall understanding of records that not very many people have that are called themselves producers. I think George Martin has it, and uh, where they have this arranging ability to uh, orchestrate albums that normally are not orchestrated, like R&B albums or mm-hmm. pop albums and stuff like that. So uh, I've learned a lot from him, and uh, uh, you know he's uh, he's a, an icon in the uh, in the field. You know? Yes, and being there at Sunset Sound, we got to mention that you know one of the things that made. One of the things where Quincy, I think, was real smart is that he latched on to Bruce Swedeen, his engineer, real early on. And Bruce was just an amazing engineer to work with also. Yeah. Really on, an, on, an, on really next level. 
Who is your favorite engineer of all time? Oh, boy. One that you could have worked with or could have worked with or did work with? Mm. Well, I have a couple. Sure. Because I grew up in the industry, so I I have to go through the time period. Armin Steiner was my first favorite engineer. Armin Steiner. Armin Steiner, okay. Mm -hmm. He did MacArthur Park, and he had sound recorders uh, on the corner right across from Capitol. So sound I used labs, to see him, right? Sound labs. Sound labs. Yeah, yeah but sound before that, he was. Oh, really? A, yeah, which became oh, total experience. I didn't know that. But it was sound, sound recorders or hmm. something like that. Okay. On, on Argyle, on Yucca. And I saw him record the rhythm section to like uh, MacArthur Park and, and do all these great with Hal Blaine and Joe Osborne, those things. Yeah. So when I was a kid, it was Armin. But as I grew up, I mean, I used to see Al Schmidt uh, record Jefferson Airplane and. <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, okay, and that was uh, an eye opener, and uh, so I had a lot of uh, a few favorite engineers. Jeff Workman, who did a lot of Queen stuff with uh, uh, Roy Thomas Baker, was a favorite engineer working with him. But Bill Schnee, so, Bruce yeah. Swedeen, we got yeah. to work with so many. Yeah. Al, we got to work yeah. with so many. Yeah, Tom Knox was a great engineer. He really was. You know, uh, we got to work with so many. Bill Schnee was in here two days ago in this room working. Um, yeah, like cool. Monday. on a project. Yeah. yeah. He helped yeah. Paul out and uh, got us all the Ringo photos. That, oh, that was yeah. One, yeah, that was one of right. his first gigs. He right. was telling, he was like a 1920. He was like Richard's his, Richard, guy Perry. Richard Perry. And when they did the Ringo sessions, they did them both in here, Ringo and Goodnight Vienna. And I've been trying to get those photos for 30 plus years. Okay. And he helped me get them. They're incredible. Very John cool. Lennon in here and Ringo and who George else? George Harrison. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, Klaus Vorman oh and yeah. Billy Preston and Harry Nielsen. Oh, boy. It was a crazy session with everybody yeah. on it. Yeah. I think he describes it in his book. Yeah. Do either was... of you have a book out? I don't. No. I'm actually writing a book about David. Yeah. <laughs> What's it called? It's a, it's a very thin book. <laughs> more, more of a pamphlet. <laughs> <laughs> the wow. wit and wisdom of David Pierce. Yeah. Do you guys go hang even when you're not just like writing a song, go to dinner and just bullshit it and no? No. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> not as much as we used to. We used to be joined at the hip. Yeah. But uh uh I love it. We still we still yeah. love each other. We still work together and text each other and uh yep. it's a love it's a love affair, you know? A musical love affair. Um the album Fahrenheit, after that, Steve, you depart Toto. Mm-hmm. What was the reasoning behind that? You know, it's real simple. The, the, the good news is there, there wasn't, uh, um, for the most part, by and large, we got along great, especially being in a band with, you know, with brothers in it and old school chums. And for a while there, I was in the band with two of my brothers. And uh, um, I thought we got along pretty darn good. I mean, my brother and I, Je- my brother Jeff and I would bump heads. He would always be coming from such a purely musical place. And like, I was always trying to incorporate this techie stuff. Uh, so we would bump heads on some of that stuff. But overall, we got along great. But where things were at with the band at the time, I remember, uh, um, you know, keeping it up and, you know, staying current and keeping your record company happy. Like everyone else, trying our best to stay current. And yeah. all of a sudden, when Nirvana and all these other kind of bands started coming up, keyboard bands with keyboard players started to become real unpopular, mm-hmm. let alone two keyboard players. Yeah. That, that became really unpopular. And the guys had been talking about, you know, 
we really want to scale things down. We don't want to do these grandiose productions. And they were kind of describing what my part in the band was to me, you know, the things I lived for, you know, but I completely understood it. You know, they just were trying to keep our record company happy and stay current with the times, you know what I mean? So um, I remember coming home from our Japanese tour and it it was great because there was no big blowout. There was no argument. There was no ugly fight. I just, after the tour for the Fahrenheit album, I I told them, you know what? I'm still going to be around. As a programmer, I'm not, uh, and I still did two more tours. I didn't want to leave anyone. And did every album we did. I worked on all the records and stuff like that. I just wasn't going to be, you know what I mean? They just didn't have to worry about me and trying to carve out my sound and, you know what I mean, make any statement as far as synthesizers went and stuff because that seemed to be the way things were heading. Creatively, as an artist, where did you head then? Solo stuff, working with other musicians and producers? Yeah, I floundered and- for a bunch of years and just kind of was at David's house doing whatever the hell I wanted to do, which was, you know, starting a bunch of songs, yeah. you know, experimenting, doing all the stuff I'd always want to do. You know, human nature afforded me to be able to do that for a few years. But then I, uh, with our friend James Newton Howard, started doing very well in the film world. Yeah. And he uh, asked me if I wanted to dip my toe in that stuff. And I uh, started diving into some of that work. Yeah, by the way, uh, one of those songs that were when he was floundering around was Human Nature. It was for Michael Jackson, okay? Yeah, That's I was one still of his, in Toto then. You I know was, what I that, mean? that was yeah. after was Human Nature. Oh, okay. That's on my list. Human Nature, obviously, <laughs> yeah. monster. Don't forget, lest we forget that one. Were you the sole writer of that? No, I wasn't. I started off the sole writer of it, but then uh, Quincy had asked me, um, when he saw my finished lyrics, the lyrics were never finished with the demo that he heard. Yeah. Um, he asked me if I would mind if he brought in someone to rewrite the first lyrics, and I was I had zero problem with that at all. Um, I was kind of looking forward to it. And he brought in John Bettis, and he could not have done... When I first saw the lyrics, there was not one syllable to change. He just yeah. knocked it out of the park. They kept my chorus lyrics exactly yeah. like they were on the demo. And uh, he gave it this narrative. He turned my record into a song. Sometimes it's the other way around, you know, but he made it a decent song as well, you know. And Quincy pretty much did our, our, uh, um, the way we had, you know, demoed it up at the manor, you know, with Jeff and, uh, um, you know, using our our bass, our program bass and drums and my keyboard part. And he added Luke and he added Michael Boddicker on some other, some other stuff. And then, of course, what Michael brought to the table can't be, you know measured can't be measured we've been uh, talking just ab- amazing we've been talking about michael with a few different people on this show what what was michael like in your experience well i don't know about steve's but i was uh, taken by the fact that he was a perfectionist and so we were v- very much perfectionists uh, from seals and crofts and working with steely dan we had the microscope out on Louis every de- on every detail so he first thing i we talked about was we want to get this perfect. We, I don't want to let anything slide because he let a couple of things slide. I was playing, I was first playing on um, uh, Billy Jean. I, I started to do a couple overdubs and he let a couple of things slide and I stopped him and I said, listen, I, I, that's unacceptable for me. I want to get this exactly right. So uh, that's the, the attitude he took for the whole album was this perfectionism thing. You know what I mean? To get Steve's song right for Steve 
and to get er, uh, every little part, you know. He was such a pro. He was great to work with. He was great. And we had this total respect. And it it just Mm -hmm. was, he was just a real pro, you know. And And the other thing I loved about him is that when he would, if he did record something even at home, if just as a goof or just yeah. as a little demo, if there was something magical about it, he'd keep it. He didn't see, even if we had to, if even if he had to fight for it, you know what I mean? That uh, even though it was just recorded at home by his tech, you know, by his right. by his tech, Brent Averill or uh. something like that, it it uh, <laughs> if it was magical, it was magical, you know. So, David, I got a question for you. So, last year I um, saw Toto with the Greek, and um, you were in the band. Was that your final farewell? No. With the band concert-wise? I've, I've been uh, flying out to a couple locations and oh. secretly showing up uh, at a couple of gigs to keep my hand in there because I love playing live and I love playing okay. with the guys. But uh, that was pretty much, I was tapering off here trying to you know, go into early you know, uh, semi-retirement there and off the, from the road. And because uh, the roads are uh, it's hard out there, if you're on a bus and get older, I, and, I don't know how Luke does it. Uh, I mean, Three hundred days a year. He's a road puppy, uh, you know. Jeez. And know. Uh, but that was uh, that was one of our better shows. That great theater shows really there, was. and uh, we had our lighting lights together, and we had uh, everybody. Everything was just clicking right there. So uh, Luke but, is a is a next level musician. He's yeah. such a, a pure. I don't know. I think he's the best guitar player in the world, pound for pound. You know, yeah. especially now. There's, yeah. you know what I mean. There's, yeah. there's every part he ever did on one of my songs. What he just sat down and did, and even yeah. if I wasn't in the room, what he did with Quincy Jones and Human Nature, I wasn't even around. And he just sits down, and the parts he comes up with, you see why so many people hired him. Yeah, I would figure out two months into a tour. Hey, you know, this is what I should have played on the record. Mm-hmm. I'd settle into yeah. the part I should have played on the right. I could have just done this and it would have said everything as opposed to whatever I went through on the record. Luke does that. These guys do that when they first sit down. They settle into Immediate. something. It's like they've been playing it yeah. for three months and they do it like that on the spot. That's how my brother Jeff was with a drum part. Yeah. You know, that's the way these guys are. And, uh, Luke, to me, I completely understand. If I could play like he does, I'd be wanting to share it with the world. You know, he's like one of those jazz greats. He's just uh, um, his next personality level. also yeah. is just so quick. You know, yeah, it's just oh, so he's fast. Really yeah. fast, but a bit, again, to give him praise, to give Luke praise, I can't tell you what. Like Steve said, he's a next level musician. You know, I've, there's a lot of people that are down here. There's keyboard players and everything. But Lukather stands above them all, you know what I mean? Playing with Ringo. I mean, he's the one guy that plays all the parts perfectly like the records were and everything and lays he the nails. time. To, he's got, first of all, he's got great time. And uh, he really keeps that band locked in. And uh, I can't say enough about him. Look at, this, look at the uh, Rosanna solo that he did that he ended up tripling. He, that's him improvising and then tripling a guitar solo. I mean, I was, he was. I would be lucky to get that to get that even once. He was maybe. like that in high school. You, you know, know what I mean? Really? Was, oh yeah, he was playing like born that with in high a guitar school. in his hand. You yeah, know? yeah. He was a. And he didn't have his parents weren't musical at all. You know, at yeah. all. Well, he uh, sure so, got the bug. Amazing player. We started this show to document the studio, and when we have uh, guests coming on, we put up a little teaser on Twitter, and then ask 
questions to be submitted. So I have a few of those right now, if we could run through them. But I would like to start with my own personal question. And Farouk's an assistant engineer over there, and he runs sound for us. Farouk's. And he wanted to check out his uh, mic setup on that piano, and we were just maybe after we're done, if you would play Human Nature on that 1907 Steinway, uh, Mr. Picaro. Would that be too much to ask? I'd love to. Be incredible. This is the guy you want playing piano, too. No, no, this guy right here. By the way, the mics look great. <laughs> what are they? <laughs> Dude, I have no idea. Gotcha. There you go. That'll work. Will that work, Dave? That'll work. I can tell you right now. <laughs> the YouTube audience is tough on him because they love the sound sometimes, and then if it goes a little below level, they like to leave the oh, comments. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, What's, uh, it has to do, again, when I played with Nicky Hopkins in this room, and I think there was a Steinway in here yeah. that used to sit here. That's probably, probably it. That's it. And Nicky, they wanted, uh, Lowell wanted Nicky to play electric whirlicks or electric piano, and Nicky was, had had a couple, not kicked back a couple of drinks, and Nicky just said, bro, I, I should be playing piano on this. And I was like, he's exactly right. Let Nicky play the grand piano, and I'll play the Wurlitzer. So we did, and he sat down and just started playing an intro like "You Are So Beautiful." I mean, you could hear when. It's, it's, my point is, you, you, from piano player to piano player, it's a different touch on everybody, and they can make it sound totally different. Mm. You know, yeah. Billy Payne's that way. Mm. You know, <laughs> when he sits down, it's it's Billy Payne. Doctor John, I work with Doctor John in here, Whoa. and he sat down at the piano and played, oh and it sounded totally different than when I was playing. You know, yeah, what record? Wow. Um, that was for Yvonne Elliman. Oh, I remember her. What about yeah. the one? Didn't your dad do some arrangements for Dr. He John? did, but I didn't play on any oh, of okay. that. You know? uh, and anyway, it was in this room. I forget what the producer's name was. Michael somebody. I want to say Michael Stewart, but that's not right. Um, and uh, uh, again, that, that piano right there, you know, has seen a lot, seen a lot, and played a lot, you know? That's another thing you could say. What is it about Sunset? The piano. You know? And you know who bought that piano for the studio? Hmm. Don Randy of the Wrecking Crew. Well, there you go. Dig it. There yeah. you go. Don yeah. Randy knows Dig pianos. It. That's right. Yes, I think does. so. I think I knew that for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Father sent him out with. I a, didn't even know that, but we interviewed yeah. Don, and he goes, "You know, I bought those pianos for your dad." And I went, "You did? Yeah. 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 Yep. I think I saw I, in an interview or something yeah. with Don or yeah. you or something. Yeah, Don. Uh -huh. Of course, at the time, I had my nine foot st st uh, Baldwin, Baldwin that Whoa. I used to bring to sessions. <laughs> I used to have it shipped. Hey, really? You yeah. carted that around? Yeah. I started shipping my piano when I did a session. Holy and God. my mics. Whoa. And mics. I had a pair of Shep's stereo mics yeah. that Massenburg bought for me that, that are symphonic mics. And I used to mic the piano with that, you know? Wow. That's a lot funny. of effort. Huh? That's yeah. a lot of effort. I used to ship a, send a piano down, a set of mics, and bring an engineer sometimes. You brought that piano to Japan when we toured. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. By the way, you're supposed to play that piano right now. No, we'll do it afterwards. Oh, okay. I want, if you both of you would just okay. sit down for Absolutely. five seconds, I think it'd be the most incredible, fun yeah. thing ever. But uh, to the fan question, um, thank you so much, guys, for sitting down. Toto's music has touched the lives of fans worldwide. Can you share, share some of the most meaningful or inspiring stories you've heard from your fans about the impact your music had on them? All I can speak to right now is all the love we've gotten from the fans over the years mm -hmm. and how much it's meant to us and how much it's inspired us. And uh, we've gotten a lot of that. You know, I, I, love, I, I love my life that I've, I've been able to do it 
making music and making records, especially things that have stood up and and uh, a lot of people all over the place have been able to hear them. And it's yeah. it's uh, uh, it's been a great yeah. life, you know. Again, the uh, a lot of fans have told us that the, we've been the soundtracks to their lives, which is a cliche, but it's actually true because they start mentioning when they people when they first met their their future wife. Uh, it was a, during a Toto song. On or when their kid was conceived. When or... the kid was conceived. Sometimes, <laughs> what, what blows yeah. my mind is sometimes they name their kids Rosanna after the record Rosanna. No or they'll kid. have an Africa tattoo. Or even uh, some guys have Lukather tattoos on places I don't even want to talk about. Oh, that's, okay? a, that's interesting. Yeah. So those are wow. a couple of memorable ones right wow. there. How did Todd Phillips get in touch with you for The Hangover? I mean, that obviously catapulted that song for the 90th time, Africa. Todd Phillips was the director of Hangover. Do you remember your agent calling you about that? It's, right, I mean, with, it goes Bradley viral Cooper. every other year. Tell me Bradley about Cooper. it. <laughs> Bradley Cooper one? Uh, it just has been everywhere. You know, Weezer covered yeah, Africa. Yeah, I mean, Weezer resurrected it, they didn't did. they? Yeah. While I was, was on the road with the guys, you know, back in, you know, t before 2019 and stuff, I was, you know. He played, he played on Jimmy Kimmel, I think, with Weezer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but we, oh, you know, we were touring solo. around and it was like having a hit record on the radio. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Africa was just everywhere. Second yeah. coming. So yeah. cool. It's like I Luke Combs right now with Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. It's, sure. You know, right. It's massive exactly. again. And that song was yeah. recorded. And I love that record when it first came out. Oh, that, of course. I heard Luke me. talking about the loops and all that stuff when we did. We're one of the first ones to do loops, I think, in this studio right here with uh, Al Schmidt, yeah. who Al knew how to put microphone stands and let tape, mm -hmm. use them for tape heads, and use and wrap the tape around. And some guys would hold, hold a pencil while just to just to feet take the roll uh, the roll up of the tape. We were doing you know twenty four I mean? track loops. Yeah, really with two yes. inch tape. Two-inch tape. Oh, my God. Yes. So we With Lin, would have, they had Lenny and Jeff playing and that's, all, that's everything just, on it. That's Africa. Yeah. Oh. That was a 24-track tape loop. Oh, I didn't know that. I think one, wow. two, three, four. I think it's a two-bar loop. and But I think two bars at 30 ips. We were doing 30 ips at the time, not yeah, Dolby. Yeah, 30, yeah. And so that's a lot of tape. That is a lot of tape because it's, <laughs> it's spinning by those heads pretty quick. Yeah, and it's going around the mic, the mic uh -huh. stands and everything. It's uh -huh. like George Martin used to do with the Beatles, you know. Uh-huh. The goal was to fully maximize the studio as well, to do as much oh, stuff as you could for sure. that record. Absolutely. Sure. Wow, that was so much fun, wasn't it? Just being yeah. in here. We would months. hear about the Beatles experimenting and doing all that kind of stuff, and there was always, there wasn't all the stuff there is now. So we were always, you know, trying to take it to another level. Yeah, that song was a, pretty much an experiment because we pretty much had the album, yeah. and that was just like, well, let's just play around with yeah. this because we have some spare time and we have the album done and everything like that so it's uh it surprised all of us where did africa come from though i mean who was even oh just i know, you know but page i sat down and i was singing my little some fragmented poetry lines and uh uh i just sang that chorus when i got to when i when i had a verse first of all there was a new instrument called a cs80 from yamaha well the gs1 was the Kalimba sound. The Kalimba sound. But the, when I got the dum, 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 dum. But that had been that around was, for a while. That was that uh, brass flute mm -hmm. sound. But that had been around CS80. for a while. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And anyway, we got this, the Kalimba sound on it. And uh, But when I played it on piano, I got went to the chorus, and I just sang that chorus that's on it. And I went, I think this is good. I, I've got to build something around this. You know? We all thought it was nuts. Yeah. We were sure and it was, I was nuts. And I was. <laughs> We were positive. Yeah, positive. That's he was so no. It's the last, you know, you remember how it used to be with vinyl. 
It's the last cut on side two. Yep. Who puts their only number one single oh, no. as the last yeah. cut on side two? The grand finale. Who's ever done that in the history of records? I mean, maybe someone has, but nothing comes to and, mind. And, and as, you, as a reward for doing yeah. that song, the band told me, <laughs> Next time you write a number one hit, please don't sing on it. Okay? <laughs> that was a request from a band member, okay? Which That's, I gladly accept. I went to Indiana University, and I was talking to Steve about this even. They would have uh, Africa nights where they would play the song on loop in a bar all night long. Oh, really? Just keep going and going well, and going. You say Indiana? Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> it's interesting you should say that, because Straight No Chaser, the acapella group, just recorded a total medley. And I re-sang Africa, the verse to it, a cappella with their group in oh, there. Wow. It's on the YouTube right now. Really? And uh, <laughs> check that so, out. And uh, what else was I going to say um, about the? Oh, there's another group in uh, in South Africa called the Youth Choir, African South African Youth Choir, that does a knock-up job. Bet my favorite mm. version of Africa because they start it with authentic mm. South African language, uh, you know, translations and stuff like that. And it's, it's just version. amazing to, to, to hear the different versions. You know what I mean? Did anyone, what was like, what did the critics say when it, when it came out? Were they just like, what uh, the I don't hell think is the critics were that notice? fond of us at the time. You know, I think we were, we were, you know, we had some They're good reviews not. here and there, but in general, <laughs> the total four, the clash was out and everybody was into the clash. <laughs> And they couldn't figure out why Toto was getting uh, these nominations and stuff like that. It was we were musos. We were we were we were musos who were who were we'd spend hours and hours on bass drum sounds and synth sounds and stuff like that. And and uh, you know we always had to remember that that the the journalists were English majors and the first thing they looked at were the lyrics. Yeah, they weren't really concerned with the pocket yeah. or the groove or the chord changes. They the first thing they would see were the lyrics, and sometimes the you know Africa is an exception. Dave really, that was David really putting a concerted effort into making the the lyrics, uh, you know, bringing them bringing it up a notch. You know what I mean? Yeah. But a lot of them, I can just speak for my own songs, were, you know, would be kind of a, a word salad there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I was more concerned with the sound of them. I was inspired by guys like John Anderson of Yes, where I could never make sense of the lyrics at all. Yeah, it was more about right, how things yeah. sounded and stuff. Yeah, and, I was into you know, Procol Harum and Whiter Shade of Pale with Keith Reed. Okay. Those kind of, you know, almost... Uh, they weren't that good. You know, uh, different kinds of lyrics, you know. <laughs> you know, that's seriously, right? That's where the bar was. Yeah. But um, I don't think... They, you know, they had a, uh, uh, you know, their lyric writer was a non-performing band member. Yeah. The guy was Ooh, a poet. Keith he didn't, Reed. didn't oh. play a note, the guy who wrote the lyrics. Yeah. He was a band that. member, but non-performing. <laughs> All he did was write the lyrics. And you know, what great lyrics. Yeah. Salty Dog, Bringing Home the Bacon. Yeah. Are there Conquistador. any unreleased tracks on Toto 4? Uh I think we put them all out. I think that was all we had yeah. on Total Four. I think the unreleased track, if Africa, there was a good chance Africa was not going to go on that record. That would have been an unreleased track. <laughs> wow. Okay. That would have been a mistake. <laughs> what advice would you give to aspiring musicians or bands who wish to record at iconic studios like Sunset Sound based on your experiences here with Toto? How do you utilize a studio? What's the best thing to do if you're coming in as a kind of a newbie? 
I have a couple different answers. One would say try and learn as much at home if you can. Read up on it because it's a different time. Great answer. Right now. Yeah, hundred percent. Read up on it. Look at look at uh, uh, YouTube and try and learn a little bit about engineering before you go in and waste time in a professional studio. That's what we were able to do that on weekends because we trade favors with the studio owners to go in and fiddle around with the knobs. But you can't really do that, you know. And yeah. uh, uh, so I would say to learn what they can and. And if you have a band that has chemistry, then you might want to find a good room. But you ought, you ought to get that a lot of that sussed out before you get in the studio, and try and uh, you know just make sure you have uh, you have a little bit of knowledge about how microphones and try and do a little recording at your home. Uh, home. Like most of the older schooled engineers, like Armin and Hassinger, used to do record in their houses before they became studio guys you know yeah i'm sure you know look we, like we that. feel for everyone coming up now you know the budgets that we had just don't exist anymore it's a different yeah. world now right you know uh it's a completely different world so we have to to make note of that you know what i mean yep. you know after that it's just you know practice 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 and yeah. just bring you know what i mean keep writing and keep making it the best you can yeah. and uh yeah, just to be able to get into a magical place like this and record with your band is yeah. uh, um, is such a, a rare and and privileged thing to be able to do. And I yeah. wish I wish it on everybody. You know what I mean? Everyone uh, uh, you know has been sitting in their bedroom or in a small rehearsal space or whatever, and they don't know yeah. what what it brings to the table. How great it is to have a support staff, yeah. to have a yeah. have a great second engineer who knows the room, to have a maintenance staff that's there for whatever you need. Yeah. I used to make friends with those guys in case I needed a cable made so I could trigger a mini Moog from a right. profit or whatever. Uh, uh, it's such a, I'm yeah. so privileged and so lucky yeah. to be able to work in studios like this. And I, I really wish it on everybody. And I, uh, I know it's hard, but uh, it's coming back. Though. Well said. A lot of pop yeah. artists are coming in studios. Yeah, I would love just say, hearing that right on. Yeah. Tell them to believe in themselves too. You gotta, you gotta have a passion. Believe with a passion, yeah. you know. Yeah, you can get intimidated. Also, younger artists coming in, you know, they see these engineers that work with great artists every day. I know. Yeah, like, oh, maybe my songs aren't that good. Do I sound right? Um, no, sure. Look, at, there's always been that thing too, where bands, you know, where an A and R guy sees a band at a club and they're amazing, and they get him in the studio, and there's that thing where all of a sudden the red lights on, it frees up, and. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, a lot of times in the drummer, all of a sudden things are rushing in a in a too much or whatever. It's it's uh, you know um, you want to rehearse yeah. and have it together and yeah. really record yourself as much as you can and listen yeah. back to it. It's so essential, though. I mean, one, if you want a, a great drum sound, you kind of got to come in a room like this to get it. But I'm telling you, it's romantic because this it's a room you bring art into and there's oh, a group of trained people yeah. there to facilitate to only make your art yeah. better you're yeah. there to service the song that's right the artist and it's and, that's and beautiful the, the art of fitting a drum sound into a track is the mm. whole art that's what engineers used to build make the drum sound and then as the overdubs would come they'd get a sound that would fit into that track they'd sculpt that track literally like ladani like uh, al schmidt used to did mm. so that's the one of the things is your engineer working closely with the band, then you have these chili pepper sounds, or you have, you know, Elton John's, you know, sounds, or Phil Collins, yeah. you know, that engineers are working with them on their, on, again, uh, the song is the ultimate goal, and they're, they're uh, sculpting sounds 
to uh, to tell the story. Very well put. Uh, blanket question. How does the creative process differ when composing for movies compared to your work with Toto? Well, I can speak to one aspect, and I'm sure David has something to say too, where uh, what was shocking for us, we were used to the music. It's all about the music, right? You know, we would microscope the music in here and, and other places. Um, you know, in film, you've got to be serving the picture. You know, I mean, and, and sometimes where I would fail as a composer is that I'd start writing, I'd, the picture would inspire me and I'd start writing, but then for me, the music would kind of start taking on a life of its own and it would be time to go to the chorus, right. you know, mm -hmm. in my head. And you know what I mean? Sometimes then I would go there, I would change things where uh, uh, a lot of the great guys, the Jerry Goldsmiths, the John Williams, the Hans Zimmers, they're serving the picture every frame. And this is why the directors love them is because they're just constantly serving the picture. And that's uh, uh, a huge lesson for anyone um, working on film, you know? David did Great most much. of the stuff on Dune, did the most of the thematic stuff. Yeah, with the help of my dad, who was orchestrating right now. But you, uh, my dad always said that, I asked my dad why he wasn't, did do more films. He goes, because the music's secondary to in the film industry. And when you're a hardcore orchestrator, composer, jazz guy like my dad was he wanted the music to be the most important thing at every time he wrote you know also in 2023 artists come in here and they think like, oh i should get on a label there's so many ways to work in the music industry now with syncs film or just getting with a good publisher people think that getting signed to a label is what no, it it's is true. like in well, 1988 or no you everyone would like to think that with the internet you know, I can just record my music myself. My stuff is sounding good. My, you know what I mean? Everything's, why can't I just put this out and have people can find it and buy it from me and I pay my rent. Yeah. And end of story. Well, the, the reality has wound up being that as far as, you know, record labels go is that they're able to, there's this thing as far as distribution goes, as far as getting it on playlist. There's these elements of, of reality that uh, are, are still true, yeah. even in this new world of uh, us being able to do stuff at home or whatever. There's that, that level, you know, especially just this distribution thing, getting it into stores, getting it on playlists, whether it's Spotify, it still takes a promotion team. It takes a team to really yeah. to get your stuff out there, almost regardless of who you are. You know, yeah. This is why even big stars still deal with big record companies. Yeah. You'd think yeah. uh, Bruce Springsteen wouldn't need a record company. He's Bruce Springsteen. Wouldn't there be enough people that would just buy his stuff if he just had someone printing up his CDs in a back room? Yeah. You know what I mean? But, yeah, right. But you know what? All these guys, and, and, and they still fight with their record companies, and they still have issues, yeah. and there's still lawsuits all the time. It's, it's, a, a, it's a crazy thing. Now, there are with syncs, and, and there are all kinds of new ways to get your music out there, to make a living with it. It was it was a lot easier, I think, when we came up because we didn't have to have a million views on TikTok or, or, or the uh, IG. Right, there was no social media. And, and Instagram yeah. and all that stuff where yeah. you get measured. Your, your music isn't measured by the music anymore in a lot of cases. It's measured by how many views or how many fans you have, followers you have now. Right. So it's a... Uh, it's a mixed scenario right now, and I, I applaud anybody that has the uh, good sense to go out there and, and give it a try and give it a go, you know, give it their best shot. I mean, you'd like to think that the cream still rises to the top, 
You know, as much crap as there is out there, you know, as much as the market is flooded with all kinds of stuff, you know what I mean? You'd like to think that the, the, the real true artists, you know, especially great singers that, uh, you know, that they're, the cream rises to the top and that they're found somehow and they're supported and they're able to to come in the studios like this and make records and and Adele or Bruno Mars. The majors only sign off TikTok. You got to go viral and you got to bring your fan base to the label and then they want you to recreate it. And when you don't, they drop you. Yeah. You have to have all that together before you even approach, you know. And if you released Africa in 2023, let's say next Friday and it, it did well, but then if you released it on Saturday, yeah. it might do very poorly just based on the analytics. Ab- absolutely, day absolutely. And based on the algorithms it gets in, and your whole career is not going to do based well because, a, yeah, the day it was released or the time. Well, hopefully it's because we were striving to go do good work, yeah. you know what I mean, and good do make a contribution to the music, mm-hmm. you know, and, and trying to be different a little bit. And luckily I had a band full of, we had a band full of great players who job was to arrange their own parts and produce their own parts literally and it was such a luxury because i i was having trouble getting songs placed and i was right writing songs trying to get uh, people to cover them and it was it's a very hard road so i envisioned putting a, a, a ensemble together that could be my vehicle to do it as well as other band members who chose to uh, start writing and stuff like that so it was out of necessity to uh, get songs heard, you know what I mean, that uh, we put the band together and a bunch of exceptional musicians. I just have to give the band a lot of credit for the music that you hear because it's very, uh, it's very precision, technically, you know, it's passionate and yet uh, technically in the pocket, you know. Wow. I have one last question and then if Paul has one, we can wrap up. But you two have been lifelong friends. Mr. Page, what's one of your favorite things about Mr. Picaro? I don't really have it. <laughs> Mr. Picaro. He can put him on the spot like that. David's generosity from day one. You know what I mean? I mean, really, Toto Alba, he used to joke about it, but there's there's a certain amount of truth there while everyone's like, Dave, when are you going to do a solo album? And it, he'd say, like, all the Toto albums are my solo album. You know, it really was true. You know, he would every year... You know what I mean? When you would have to do this year after year and we tour and do whatever other sessions we do and then have to come up with a with a, another album, David was there. And yet, I never, I could do the strangest experiment. I could do whatever the hell I wanted to do. And I could do it at Sunset Sound. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. You know, I could hire, go to Kazimov Blutner and hire, one time I did that, here and it was a studio three studio, studio 50, uh, you know yeah here. in the middle studio there oh, yeah. you know i hired a a, a real clavichord a that's harpsichord right. a mozart piano i hired one of each that's right acoustic instruments that this guy had because i had this idea wow. for this song of mine and toto enabled me to do that you know what i mean and david i never felt like you know what it's one of your songs if we have time no i uh I got to do whatever the hell I wanted to do, and I hope I didn't take too much advantage of that. Now I'll answer. Glad to have you. Steve, my favorite thing about Steve, besides his zany sense of humor, is uh, his work ethic. He always put, no matter whose song it was, 
and I had a lot of songs that he worked on. He would put 110% into it and always come up with something that was creative that I would never have thought of and stuff like that. And yet, while we were working on the stuff, because I had a studio, it was kind of like a laboratory with Roger Lynn there and Ralph Dyke and mm-hmm. a lot of these people uh, uh, with Steve, there was always this childlike joy and fascination with making these sounds and making the music. It wasn't like we were in there, okay, you have three hours to do this, and then you're going to go to your other session like that. It was just like fascinating. It was like science yeah. in, a, in a lab because I, I know nothing about electricity. And uh, <laughs> all, I had all these great, incredible inventors. The Steve was kind of guiding, making this thing called the station that everybody has now that's come out where it's a workstation where you have your, your computer there and all your keyboards and everything kind of on a drum kit looking like a drum kit. Well, and Steve came up with that as well as uh, some innovations in the Lynn drum machine itself. Very important. Wow. And so, I, like I said, his creativity and imagination uh, about the specific science of, of learning uh, uh, CVs and gates and MIDI and all that stuff, uh, his work ethic was just uh, beyond to compare. We had a blast. We had a blast. Still are. We got paid for it. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. You both have some projects that could be coming up, and uh, you have a project that's out. I'd love to just touch down on that real quick. I have a solo EP that I did uh, and put out last year, and uh, it's called Forgotten Toys, and it just sold a few in Japan because Toto just sold out Budokan there. Sure did. And uh, wow. I'm very proud of it. It's mm-hmm. on Mascot Records. You can get it on Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, and it's called Forgotten Toys. And I, I hope that you'd go out and, uh, we'll check and it buy out. it or check it out. Killer title. And I've got enough low-hanging fruit. I'm going to do another solo album. I did one way back in uh, 2016, and um, I've almost got another one ready to go. Wow. Nice. Very excited about it. And uh, one of my favorite songs is one I wrote with David. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. You play music every day? Pretty much. I practice every day. Yeah, that's... A little bit. I kind of have to remind myself to be a human being sometime and look away and be with the family. Yeah, absolutely. Not go ahead and watch a movie, go to a movie. Where before it was 24-7, you know, music. And we would all be together. James Newton Howard's would be, there was a time when James lived at my house, okay? People were (laughs) living and visiting every single day. Then it became down to once a week, then once a month. Then we wouldn't hear from anybody, you know, for a year because they got famous or uh, got busy, you know. But for a lot of years, it was like it was like going to Disneyland every day. Yeah, it really was for a lot of years. Absolutely. Wow. Paul, any final questions? Yeah, I got one last question. Awesome. It's kind of I'm interested to hear. You guys have any idea how many records Toto has sold worldwide? We got so an, that, you know, we got a, there was some award. I don't know exactly what this was for, but while we were out, you know, this last, the nine right, years that I was right. out with the band, there was an, an award for like 50 million records sold. Oh, yeah, 40 million records. Was it 40 million? 40, 40 million, million records. records, yeah. And oh, that was pretty in 19, That was in 20... Yeah, 40 million. Uh, that was about five years ago or something. That was our 35th Is anniversary. Right? 40 million? Yeah. Wow. But a half a billion on all records you on guys have all the records touched. We've, we've been on. Thriller and everything <laughs> yeah, else. Yeah, Thriller and, uh, and Dirty Laundry. You know, Silk Degrees. That's amazing. Stuff Jeff played on. Think of if you hadn't gotten in the business. All the things Luke played on. I know, yeah. Wow. Being a gigantic Jeff Picaro fan, do you remember the last time you talked with Jeff or saw him or hung out? 
I did, and uh, we were talking, what were we talking about? I think doing a, the next tour we were going to do because it was going to be the uh, Kingdom of Desire, I think, and Bob Clearmount, and he just mixed that. And we were talking about uh, playing some of it live, and I remember Jeff said uh, he was getting ready to throw a barbecue at his house, and that's about the last that uh, yeah. we talked. But we spent so much time together. I know I visit Jeff every day in my mind because yeah. we spent time. We were rooming. We roomed together on the road sometimes. And uh, my first gig out of high school was with Sonny and Cher. Jeff was already in that band. So was David Hungate. I joined it after I got out of high school. And we toured for several years and then uh, toured with uh, Seals and Crofts and Boz Skaggs. And so uh, I knew Jeff pretty well for not being a blood brother. I felt like I was a soul brother of his, you know? Yes. And all, for all you young musicians, engineers, if you don't know Jeff Picaro, just type it in YouTube because he's incredible. Yeah. Incredible. And listening to the stories now of him in the studio, you know, you're, you're hearing the final products or you saw him live, yeah. but hearing him in the studio, how he worked on all these sessions too, just one yeah. take, two take done. Yeah. Jeff, one one take, maybe two takes, and he grabbed his bag and said, I'm out of here. <laughs> That yeah. would it because and it pretty much would be you'd have the get the drum track and then the overdubs would start you know it was mainly to get a good drum track you know luck sometimes we were lucky enough to play in the room with him and keep most of the parts you know yeah Steve do you remember the last time you spoke with Jeff or hung out or jammed with him no all right Jeff played on every single one of my demos and my brother Mike also they always yeah. played on all my stuff Jeff even even at the when we would be bumping heads in the band Toto. The very next day, he'd be it'd be a weekend, and I'd I'd ask him to come over to David's where I was living and to come to the studio and play drums on one of my demos, and he'd be yeah he'd be right there and be happy to great attitude and play to a click, play on pads, do whatever the hell I wanted to do, Amazing. you know what I mean? When it was when it was Toto, he held it to a certain thing, but he was always uh, uh, incredibly supportive, and uh, um, I know he was proud of me. Absolutely. And he knew how yeah. proud of all of us were of him. Well, I can't tell you how much Paul and I and all these viewers and future engineers and musicians appreciate you coming in to oh, well, thank highlight you. your work here. It's and, an honor to have worked here and to relive these beautiful experiences uh, in this studio right here. And I just wanted to say to the young viewers again, when the thing about when you get in a studio like this, you evoke all the p artists that have ever worked in here, those spirits are still in this room. Yes. And you feel it. You absorb that. I mean, we try to absorb really everybody, the, the vibes, and who's visited that drum booth, and who's played on that piano and everything, right. and kind of just uh, evoke their spirit, you know? Yeah, it motivates you. You really yeah. do. You really feel it. Yeah. You really nice. feel it, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> awesome. Is it time to record? <laughs> yeah. I can't tell you how many, right. how many engineers have said vacation's that. Vacation's you over. Your vacation's <laughs> over. <laughs> that was great. Thank time you to get so busy. Much. Oh, great. My pleasure. So special. My pleasure. <laughs> I just heard it. I just heard it played right.
I'll play another one for you while I'm here. Part, do it up here. I did it originally on the record. I was doing overhanded like I this. Phil and Gaines, when he came on the road, says, No, it's this. And he what? showed me another fingering. So you almost have the same thing. I did. Yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I have... Uh That's good for your B real guys. So Play a little bit of uh, human nature, Steve. Probably a little bit. You've never been asked to do that. Just to have the, it's that, that particular guy. What was, was an orchestra? Yeah. You know what I mean? 